uh, we live in a time, times are, are, are getting darker fast, faster and faster and faster. I mean, it's an accelerating rate. Institutions that our society has long held as right, just whether they believed in God or not, are crumbling, and people that would stand for things that are right according to God's word are crumbling all around us. And eventually, if everything around us crumbles, it's just going to be us that stands. And the question, are we going to stand? And what do we need to do in order to stand and be strong in this day and age? And one of the things that God put in my heart was one of the ways that you stand strong is to do what you're here to do and to clarify what you're here to do. Because one of the reasons that we, te- we get weak, one of the reasons we struggle is we have expectations that are wrong. I shared with you last week, and I, um, not something that originated with me, it was a, a teacher was here years ago, A.R. Bernard, and he talked about the disappointment is always the difference between what you expect and what you're experiencing. And that gap between what you expect and what you're experiencing is disappointment. So what you've got to do to get rid of the disappointment is you've either got to increase what you're experiencing or change what you're experiencing or decrease what you're expecting. Well, when it comes to the things of God, you've got to start out with, I've got to get this out straight, is what I'm expecting based on God's Word? Because if not based on God's Word, I don't have a right to expect it. But if it's based on God's Word, I have a right to expect it. Therefore, if what I'm experiencing is different, then I need to find out Why? Well, that's part of why we went through that whole long course on renewing your mind because that's part of dealing with the difference between what God's Word says you have a right to expect and then what you're experiencing. So we found out one of the reasons there's a gap is because our mind needs to be renewed to think along the terms of God's Word. And, and we saw that, 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 that by doing that, we are transformed into who God's already made us to be. Well, another factor of that is, is that to realize that you and I were placed here at this point in the time of history for a purpose. There's a purpose to your life. And that purpose is not just some general purpose. God has a specific purpose for your life, and He has chosen for you to be born at exactly this time, to be here at this time, and He's done that for a purpose and for a reason. Now, the world is, will indoctrinate us that the purpose of our life is certain things. Happiness, security, so a lot of things we, we see that are being advertised out there are designed to make you feel happy, make you feel, you know, make you feel like you're, you're handsome, make you feel like you're beautiful, make you feel like you're accepted, make you feel uh, as if you're prosperous, make you feel safe and secure. And those are nothing wrong with those things. But there's nothing in the Word of God that tells us that that should be the goal of our life. If the goal of your life is to be safe and secure, then most likely you're going to struggle because your safety and security is going to be under attack. I can think of very few people that accomplished much, forget just for God, that did it in order to be safe and secure. Because in order to accomplish great things, you have to be willing to take risks. I was shocked to discover years ago that, that most, most millionaires have failed more than once. People that made their money by their own work, by their own business. Most highly successful people failed before they succeeded. They were willing to take risks. So that means their goal was not to be, their idea of success was not to make lots of money so that they'd be safe and secure. Their idea to succeed was to take some kind of vision and see it come about. Well, God has a vision. 
God has a purpose. Just like some great entrepreneur, whether it's Rockefeller or some other great person, great in terms of business-wise, they have a goal, they have a, 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 an object out there, and they'll take risks in order to get it. And, and that's what separates very often the successful people in starting businesses from those that fail, is the success people are willing to take... They're willing to fail because they don't let the failure... They, see, a failure doesn't mean you're a failure. Thomas Edison is probably the greatest example of that. I don't remember the exact statistic, but when he was inventing the light bulb, he, had in, he understood the principle, but he had to find the right material to stretch between those two electrodes that when he ran the electricity through it, it would cause it to glow and wouldn't just either burn up right away or just not light up. And I've forgotten what the number is, but if I recall correctly, he tried over 4,000 different ones. Now, you could get discouraged, if you keep trying this, 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 no, that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work. And someone asked him at one point, aren't you discouraged? This one didn't work. He says, no, I found out, I've learned something. I found another one that doesn't work. His whole mentality was not on, am I going to fail or not? His whole mentality was, I'm going to succeed because I have a vision of something coming about and every failure just tells me I've learned something. That's not the answer. He had a vision of an electric light bulb which changed the world. But God, the creator of everything, has a vision for this particular time. Jesus, the head of the church, has a vision, which is another word for purpose, for his church at this time. And you are one of the filaments of that. <laughs> You are one of the ingredients of that and He has chosen for you to be alive at this particular time to be part of His church and this church at this time for a reason. He could have had you born a hundred years ago. He could have had you born a thousand years ago but He chose to have you born now because there's a purpose for your life. And the key to succeeding in these difficult times is to discover that purpose and to step in and begin to do it. And we are not going to need to fast and pray and take three, four, six, twelve, eight months to find out what that purpose is. Because God had it written down for you. Amen. Matthew chapter 5. We looked at this last week. Verse 13. Here's who you are. You are the salt of the earth. That's your purpose, is to be salt in the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Second purpose, you are the filament of the world. <laughs> you are the light of the world. The bulb that Edison invented may be the light that lights up your bedroom. But you are the material through which God wants to run His power. You are the material through which God wants to run His anointing, His love, His grace. He wants to run it through you, and as it runs through you, He wants you to begin to glow with the light of the love of God and the grace of God. And He's chosen you as just the right filament to run that power through. You are the light of the world. A city that's on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a lampstand that it may light all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 
The reason you were born at this time was you are salt to the world. And you are light in the darkness. So don't wonder why it's getting dark around us. That's why we're here. You don't need to put light in a, out in the daytime. I've got those in my our garage. I've got those lights that are light sensitive. So, you know, motion, so, you know, the car comes up, pulls up in the driveway, the lights come on. But they have a feature in them where when it's light outside, like during the daytime, they don't need to come on because they're not going to add anything at that point because you don't need it because you've got the light from the sun. So there's a, some kind of sensor in there that tells it not to come on when it's daylight. Why? Because they're not, the, the lights from those light bulbs are not needed when it's daylight. They're only needed when it's dark. So don't be surprised that God's put you at a time when the darkness is increasing. That's so that your purpose can begin to shine. And so what we saw last time is that what is essential, absolutely essential for us to perform our purpose for being here, what's absolutely essential is that we be different from the environment that we've been placed in. The reason light shows up is because it's different than the darkness. The reason salt adds flavor to the meat is because it tastes different than the meat. This isn't rocket science, so just, you know. But there's a profoundness about it because the church has lost sight of that. So we have been tempted and in many ways are succumbing to trying to be like the world And when we become like the world, we lose the difference. And that's what Jesus means by the saltiness. He's saying when salt doesn't taste any different than the steak, it's lost its purpose. The very purpose of the salt is to taste different from the meat. The very purpose of the light is to look different and act different than the darkness. So we need to begin to renew our mind. This is really a sequel to renewing our mind. We really begin to need to renew our mind to understand who we really are and why we're here. Because I see this next generation being lulled into the pressures of being like the world. And why are they doing that? Because our generation has laid that model in front of them. So churches, in order to attract people, are trying to become more and more like the world. Well, that is attractive. But we're not here to attract... But my question is always, what are we attracting them to? And we talked last time about what makes this different. Maybe it was Sunday, I don't remember when we talked about it. What makes church different than a social club is what we're about. And if what we're about isn't changing us and transforming us to be more like Christ, then we're no different than a social club. And I've got news for you. As we become more like Christ, we become less like the world. So you're forced to make a choice. You're either going to become more like Christ or more like the world. There's no longer going to be a middle ground. (laughs) <laughs> I 
I don't know if you've ever had the experience of stepping from a dock onto a boat that's tied up and maybe tied just a little loosely. And as you go to step on it, it's next to the dock. And as you step on it, while your weight's not fully over on the boat, the boat begins to move away. And you find yourself kind of being spread apart like that. That's what's going to happen. Because there's a point of separation that's coming. In fact, it's, it's pretty close. It's knocking on the door. And you're going to have to decide whether you're standing on the dock or whether you're standing on the boat. You're going to have to make a choice of where you're standing. And if you're going to stand on, get onto his boat, you've got to be willing to be different than the world. And we're going to talk in the weeks ahead about what you've got to go through to do that because this world has a tremendous pull on us. We're, we're indoctrinated by a certain needs in our life. And those are seeds that Satan plants in our flesh so that as we begin to, to find from the Word of God who we're called to be, he can begin to pull on these reins and pull us back out of what God's calling us to do. But the Spirit of God in us is greater and stronger and the Word of God is greater and stronger, but we've got to understand what we're dealing with. And that's the purpose of this series. It's called Separated Life. We're called to live a separated life. We're called to live a separated life. Being a Christian, listen to me carefully, being a Christian, inherent in being a Christian. See, being a Christian isn't just about going to heaven. That's good. But there's something goes with that. Being a Christian has inherent with it. That means you can't separate it out. Being different from the world. Because to be a Christian means you've got to be identified with Christ. And the question is, if it comes down to that, are we willing to be identified with Christ at what cost? At what expense? I don't know what I do under that pressure. I don't know. I'd love to say if somebody puts a gun to my head and says, denounce Christ or I pull the trigger, I'd love to say, I'd smile and say, I don't have any choice. Pull the trigger. But I don't know what I do. I pray I'd be strong enough, but I do know that I can prepare to some degree for that because there are everyday decisions I make that may not be as dramatic as either you renounce Christ or you die because there are everyday decisions I make whether I'm going to stand up for Him, whether I'm going to stand up to do what His Word says regardless of the pressures at work. I remember years ago when I first got saved, when I was practicing law, I worked in the, in the real estate field, and one of the things we had to get was a certain uh, certificate from the city of Boston. And the practice was you could either pay, there was a check you gave for the fee, and you could slip a $5 bill under the check, in which case you could get that certificate back in a day or two. But if you just gave him the check without the $5 bill, then it was weeks. And so our policy was, you do what it takes to get that certificate right away. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. And the boss that I worked under, he gave me the latitude to not do it. And I said, God, you know, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to deal upright and honest. Now, you've got to take care of things. Guess what? I got my certificates back the same time people did that put the $5 under. Now, even if I didn't, I still wouldn't have done it. 
So there are little decisions, little choices we have to make all along the way, every day. Little decisions to be either like him or like the world. Take a shortcut and be like the world or walk in honesty and integrity. That's just one area where we have a choice to make. And that's often when nobody else is looking. It's not integrity when a lot of other people are looking at you say, oh, let's see what you do. That's peer pressure. Integrity is when nobody's looking. The only people that know what your choice is is you and God. I didn't mean to get off on it that far, but that was good. So my point here is this. To be a Christian inherently means you're going to have to be willing to be different from the world around you. Now let's talk tonight. We're going to talk tonight about what it does not mean to be separated. Because a lot of times when we're using terms like that, we all have kind of our own idea. What, what does it not mean? What do we not mean by living a separated life? Well, there's traditions in certain faiths that their idea of separated is to be physically separated. So in order to be really holy and consecrated, you pull out of society and you go live on top of a mountain somewhere in either a monastery or some secluded area where you've removed all temptation, all, all the world has to offer, you've removed from yourself, and they consider that living separate from the world. But you can take yourself out of the world, but you can't take the world out of your flesh quite so easily. Because your imagination goes with you. <laughs> your lusts and your desires go right inside that door when you close it all by yourself. And you've got to contend with your own thought life and your own desires and all your stuff. You, you know, you, physically separating yourself doesn't accomplish God's will for you because that's like leaving the salt in the salt cellar shaker up on the cupboard. It's, it retains its saltiness, okay, but it never accomplishes its purpose. So to take your holy consecrated life and to stick it in a monastery somewhere, to stick it somewhere isolated from people, that may, that may, you may succeed in not concoming, succumbing to the temptations of the world, but you're not going to fulfill why you're here. Because salt only does its job when it's mixed in with the food. Salt only performs its purpose when it's sprinkled on the steak or whatever it is, the french fries, or whatever you like your salt on. It only does its job when it's mixed in with foreign territory that tastes differently, that looks differently. That's when it does its job. Light only does its job in darkness. So if you just stick the light, your light bulb in a room full of thousands of light bulbs and you never let any darkness in there, it doesn't do its job. So separated cannot mean isolated. Isolated means isolated. Separated means something else. So it doesn't mean to be physically separated from the world. In many ways, that's easier. Well, I'm just going to remove temptation from my life. Well, you won't be able to, first of all. But what often happens when we do that is we begin to get a false sense of our, of our consecration 
because I've isolated myself from all temptations, all, from physical things, therefore I'm holier from people that haven't. No, I'm just isolated. <laughs> and you can develop, doesn't mean everybody that does it will, you can develop pride in how holy you are. You didn't get that. Proud of how holy you are. They don't go together. You can't be proud and holy. Because holiness is being like God. All right. So it doesn't mean being isolated. Another thing it doesn't mean is acting strange. Now Peter says we are a holy nation of peculiar people. I've known some Christians that I would call peculiar, but that's not the meaning Peter has there. Peculiar in that scripture means distinct, separated out, but it doesn't mean weird. I used to, I mean, when I first saved, I really had this fear, and I may not be the only one in this room, that God was going to make me do some strange things. You know, like stand in a street corner with signs like the world's coming to an end wearing strange clothes. I, I, mean, I did. I wasn't sure if I submitted, surrendered to God that He might have me do weird things. And I don't know where I got that idea. Maybe it was from, from Christians I knew back then that did weird things because I did know some... I, was, I got saved back in the charismatic renewal and some of it was the charismatic removal of the mind. And I just, you know, we were part of a group that was, you know, that was, they, 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 they blessed their hearts. They were open to the Spirit, but they had no teaching on the Word. So they had no way to balance out whether what they were sensing was, the, was God or not, because this Word is what keeps you sound. This Word is what keeps you from getting weird. And they would get off into trances and weird things. And this one, remember, remember her so well. I remember her, can still see her. This we're talking at 30 some years ago. And she's in this trance, she thought, in the corner. And she came away saying, Oh, God just spoke to me and told me to leave my husband. That couldn't have been God. I mean, I knew that couple, they were good people. But it was listening to strange spirits and she, they were not grounded in the Word enough to know, wait a minute, that doesn't line up with God's Word. The Spirit of God's not going to tell you to do something that violates God, the Word of God. So there was no foundation there. So, you know, when I, we first got saved, we were around some people that did pretty weird things thinking that was the Spirit of God leading them. And I'm looking at, you know, you've got to remember how I was raised and trained. I was a... State Street lawyer in a three-piece suit. We didn't do strange things like that. Of course, they did other strange things, but we didn't do strange things like that. Religious things. It's like, you know, and, no, what is that? What kind of witness is that? Because remember, we're to be salt to the world. What's salt do? Salt wets our Salt makes it tastier. Salt is to attract. Salt is to draw. Weirdness doesn't draw. Spookiness doesn't draw. It makes people say, whoa, I don't want to be like that. But you know, people were drawn to Jesus, and he was different. People, now the religious people weren't, but that's for another reason. But children are the greatest gauge of all. Children were drawn to him. They wanted to sit in his lap. They wanted to be around him. They're not, they don't want to be around phoniness. They don't want to be around weird things. They want to be around something that's real, that's alive, that's vital. So he must have been real, alive, and vital because the kids wanted to be around him. The religious ones, even in his own staff, kept shooing them away. 
No, he's too important for you. So Jesus was different, but his difference drew people. They drew, he drew people. Weird doesn't do that. It drives people away. So we don't mean by this isolated, and we don't mean by this weird. What do we mean by it? Well, first of all, it has to do with your heart. Let's go to, we're in Matthew. Let's go to chapter 6. So we're going to begin to talk about some things that living a separated life does mean. Matthew chapter 6. Still part of the same message. He's been talking about prayer because they asked him about prayer. He talked about prayer. He talks about fasting. And all these things that he's talking about, he's talking about the attitude of their heart. Then he gets into verse 19. And this is the core of, really the core of this whole teaching he has here. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here's the whole principle. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. So what he's talking about here is where our heart is, what our heart is seeking after. This whole discussion here is what is our heart seeking after. Because the key, because the, the expression that we should use for what a separated life is, is being in the world, but not of the world. To be in the world so you can influence it, but not be of the world or part of the world. So he hasn't put us here to be separated out of the world. That day will come when the, when, the, when, the, when, the, um, when, when the rapture comes. But right now we're to be here to affect the world, but not be affected by the world. So the expression that kind of describes it is we're to be in the world, affecting the world, but not of the world or part of the world. And here's where the key is. It has nothing to do so much with how you dress or how you, although that's involved in it. But it's not the key issue. We focus on the wrong things. We focus on what people are wearing. We're focusing on what they're not wearing, hairstyles, and you know, in the holiness movement back in the earlier part of the, of the, of the 20th century. You know, it was all focused on the outward appearance. So, you know, the holy ladies had a bun on the top of their head and dresses that dragged on the floor, you know, and collars up to here and, you know, everything down to here, you know, and could be just as carnal as, as the world. But if we were dressed like that, we were holy. Now, but holiness has nothing to... I won't say it has nothing to do with how you dress. It's not determined by how you dress. How you dress may be a byproduct of your holiness. In fact, it will be. How you conduct yourself, all those things are, an, are a result of holiness, but they're not what holiness is. It's on the inside. And a consecrated or separated life is not simply what you do on the outside, because again, you can isolate yourself out of this world and still be a carnal Christian. So it's not what you do on the outside, it's what happens on the inside 
which will affect the outside, but it starts on the inside. And the place it starts is what your heart is seeking after. What your heart is seeking after. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. For where your treasure is, what you're treasuring, what you're valuing, what you're investing your time in, what you're investing your desire for, what you're looking to for your security, what you're looking to for your identity, what you're looking to for your sense of well-being, what you're looking to for your pleasure, what you're looking to as the source of those things will be what your heart begins to treasure. And what your heart begins to treasure will determine where you go. When we were studying Renewing the Mind, we talked about the soul, which is made up of the mind, the will, and your emotions. We talked about the fact that you're, 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 we, because we were studying the mind and the, the role of the mind is the effect it has on you. We talked about the role of the emotions. The emotions are like your taste buds are to your, to your body, that your, your emotions are to your soul. They're part of the, what gives life a flavor, what, what makes, what, what has passion and enjoyment. It helps us to feel pleasure in life and pain in life, unfortunately, both of them. But it also, it also is what helps us to get a sense of whether something's right or wrong, just like your taste buds tell you whether the food may be a little off. Whoops, that cream, that milk, eh, it doesn't taste right. Now I know to not drink any more of it because my taste buds are telling me something's wrong. Your emotions can be used for that purpose also. There can be a measure of whether something's wrong inside or something's right inside. So they have a function. But all of them ultimately are focused on the will because the will is the part of your soul that determines what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. And so we shared back in that study that the battlefield was the mind. The field's where it's fought. But the battle is fought for your will. That's what Satan's after, and that's what God is after. They just fight differently for it. God woos you, and Satan bombards you and tries to con you and distract you to get your will. And we learn, I use this example that, that when I was in, 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 in high school, that, that, um, that I was the manager of the basketball team. Not the coach. The coach was the bright guy. I was the guy that picked up the dirty towels. And the manager of a baseball team is the, is the smart guy. But in basketball, the manager picks up the dirty towels. And, and, but I got to hear his teaching. The, 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 and, and in defense, remember we talked about this. He taught this principle of defending against the guy with the basketball. He said, don't look at his head because he can pretend with his head he's going one way. Don't look at his eyes. Don't even look at his hands because he can fake moving the ball this way and actually end up going another direction. Don't even look at his feet. The one thing you need to look at is right here because that's his center of gravity. He, he can only go, when that center of gravity moves, that's where he's going. But that's what your will is like. You can't go anywhere without your will. You can't go anywhere without your will. And the same is true in the spirit realm about your heart. Your heart is what determines what you will do. And so this is what he's talking about here. That what you treasure in life, what's valuable to you, what you've invested as valuable in whatever area of your life it is, that's where your heart is going to lean towards and go after especially when it looks like it's going to be taken away from you. And then he goes into this strange discussion. Verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye, therefore the eye is good. 
If the eye is good, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body, or evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now what in the world is that all about? Some of you have heard me teach this before, but it's so important. I'm going to go back over this again. He's not talking about your eyeball and your... What he's talking about is this. He's making a comparison. He's using your physical body because we can understand that. And what he's saying is the way light, the way you know that I am wearing a blue shirt and a blue tie, the way you know that is because the light in this room is reflected off of my shirt and my tie, and the way that's getting into your body is through your eyeball, through the pupil, the opening in your eyeball. It's not coming in through your ears. It's not coming in through your pores. It's not coming in through any other part of you. The only way that light physical light gets inside of you so that you can know what's around you is it has to come through the pupils of your eye. And he says, if the eye is good, which means clear, the word means clear, if it's healthy, then the light that gets in you is true light. But notice what he says, verse 23. But if the eye is bad, evil, that word is a Greek word which means diseased. So if your eye is diseased, cataracts, for instance, if your eye is diseased so that there's something wrong with it, so that the light rays do not go straight in, but they're diffused somehow, or they're altered somehow, then what happens is, then the body will be full of darkness. Because notice the next phrase. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? That's what helped me to begin to understand. How can light be darkness? Because light's light and darkness is darkness. The way light can be darkness is the purpose, the purpose, the purpose of light is so that you'll know the truth of what's actually out there around you. But if that light that's getting in through your eyeballs is somehow distorted because there's something wrong with your eye, although light's getting in, it's not accurate, true light, so you can't trust it. And all of you know what that's like because if you're driving down the road on a nice day and suddenly some dust gets in your eyeball and your eye starts watering up so that it gets all full of... And you know, your eye gets so full of fluid that you can't see straight, you don't just, you don't pick it up another 10 miles an hour, do you? <laughs> if something gets in your eye and you now, there's light getting in there, but you know you're not seeing straight, you're going to slow down and pull it over till you can get that out so that you can now see clearly because you've got enough common sense, I hope, to know, wait a minute, I know there's light getting in there, but I can't trust what I'm seeing because I know it's not true light. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. Using the eye as the example of this, that when your eye is healthy, it, the light that it's allowing in is true light. But if your eye has become diseased, cloudy in any way, then the light that's coming in is in reality to you darkness. All right, you follow me so far? Let's go on. No one can serve two masters. Either will hate the one and love the other, 
or he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or things that the world offers. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, or your body, what you will put onto it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the year. For they neither sow nor they reap. They do not gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not of you of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to your statue, one inch to your statue, to your height? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lily of the fields, how they grow. They neither toil nor they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry what we shall eat or what we shall drink or what we shall wear. For all these... Here's the key. Here's the key to understanding it. All these things... Remember what we talked about back here, verse 21. Where your treasure is. What you're looking at for your self-safety, your well-being, your security, your peace in life. What are you looking for that, for whatever that is? That's where your treasure will be. Now he's talking to you, having used this comparison of why are you worrying? Don't you know what God's like, your father? Now he brings it home. For all these things, what? Clothing, food, cars, all the stuff that's necessary in life. All these things, look at this, the Gentiles seek. Gentiles means the world. We're talking about being separated from the world and what that means to be in the world but not of the world. And he's saying, all right, here's what the world does. The world seeks after all these things. It seeks after the clothing. And there's nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with wearing good clothing. It's what are you seeking after? What's your heart look investing in that? Because he says, all these things, the Gentiles, the world that we're supposed to be sold to and light to earlier in this message, all these things the world seeks after with their heart. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. You don't need to be investing your heart in those things because you know your Father knows you need those things. But what are we to invest our heart in? What are we to be seeking after? But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. This entire teaching, at least starting in verse 19, is all about what your heart's seeking after. It's all about what our heart's investing its life into and its pursuit of. It's not whether you wear nice clothes or not. It's whether your hearts are invested in those clothes. You can have your heart invested in raggedy old clothes because you want you're, you're coveting, lusting after the nice clothes that person sitting next to you has. You're, you're envious of a car that somebody else just got on jo- their job and say, oh, you see the car they got? How did they get that car? How come I've been serving God? I've been doing... How come I don't have that car? 
Seek ye first. So this whole discussion, what he's talking about here, in the same way that the health of your eye determines the accuracy and the truth of the light that's getting in your eyeball, in the same way the condition of your heart determines the accuracy of the truth that's getting into your heart. That's what he's talking about here. Paul wrote to Timothy that in the latter days, many, not some, many of the Christians will be deceived. You know what it means to be deceived? That means you can no longer tell truth from error. But you think you can. Somebody that doesn't know whether it's truth or error is confused. Listen carefully, because it's important distinctions. Somebody that doesn't know, I'm not sure what the truth here is, they're confused. Deceived means, I know that's true. And in reality, it's not. Because the more convinced I am it's true, the more blind I am to find out that it's not true. And Paul says that it was one of the verses that... that keeps rolling around in me as a pastor. Father, what do I have to do to make sure I'm not deceived and then it's this congregation that I'm responsible for to make sure that they don't end up deceived. And he's giving us a key here. What is your heart seeking after? What is your heart seeking after? So to be separated from the world doesn't mean how you dress. It means what you've invested your heart in. And by heart, I mean your value, your security. What is it that you just can't give up? What is it that you have to have in your life? What is it that you just, I have to have it, other than God? Is that where your heart is? Because wherever your heart's going after that will become the treasure in your life. And the treasure will determine whether you're like the world or you're like Christ. He was in the world, but not of the world. See, part of the problem is when the world has a hold of our heart, we don't want to leave it. See, part of this is really this series. I hadn't thought about it until last week. Really, this series is preparing for difficult times. If our toys were suddenly taken away, my wife and I went away Sunday after church service just to go a place we go to every once in a while for a couple of nights to get away and just, you know, kind of reconnect with each other and just, you know, get some little bit of rest. And I had filled in my briefcase, not filled, I put several things books in I want to read and I had my, my iPad and I had my laptop and I had you know all the stuff I usually carry with me you know and we get out we got down there and we pull into the place we were going to stay and I get the suitcase out and I go to the back of my back seat to get my briefcase out and it's not there a cold sweat breaks out on me <laughs> I literally had the thought we were an hour and a half away well I need to turn around and go back and then I was wait a minute John I went mentally through, is there anything in that briefcase I absolutely need? 
I can live for two days without those things. And I made it. I survived. <laughs> and we had a wonderful time together. We, we, we actually talked. You know, that's an old-fashioned game people used to play. That's, that's a practice couples used to have. And, and families, it's called talking. Some of you are old enough, you can remember that. You know, without this. And it's, it's, it was wonderful. But what, I, what it made me quite, all right, where, you know, what's my heart in? Do I have to have those things? Yes, they're a convenience, but, but when you invest too much of your time in something, too much of your heart in something, you get to the point where you have to have it. When you're starting to have to have something, then maybe, maybe it's become a treasure to you or becoming a treasure to you. And if it becomes a treasure to you, then is it more of a treasure to you than he is? Because the problem is to be separate from the world, he's got to be the treasure. It's what he thinks of us. It's what matters to him more than anything else. But notice he says, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, your father knows what you need. The issue isn't what you have. The issue is what has you. The issue is what has you. And that's determined by what you spend your time seeking after. When we spend more time seeking after the things of this world than seeking after Him, this world is going to have a greater hold on us. And it's, the only way you can really gauge it is when it begins to take it away from you. I felt better because I realized I didn't panic. I actually could let go of leaving my briefcase at home. I could let go of it. Just a few moments, then I could make the decision to let go of it. There was one moment in the middle of the night I thought about driving back and getting it, but, but I realized that would have been stupid. <laughs> Just so you know, I'm not totally redeemed yet. <laughs> and that's a small example. What are the things you have to have for whatever reason? So the first thing we're learning is to be a separated life has not to do whether I have or don't have. It has to do with what my heart's treasuring. What's my heart seeking after? What you'll find is as your heart begins to seek God and the things of God, it will change your taste in things. There are things I used to, you know, I just, boy, I used to, certain, uh, you know, sporting teams I used to follow religiously. I won't look at Pastor Ray right now, but... <clears throat> And you know what? I go for week, days, sometimes weeks, without even checking. And it's not a hard work. I just, it doesn't mean so much to me anymore. Because the more I spend time with Him and the more I spend time pursuing Him, the more He fills those needs up in my life. And so it's not some great sacrifice. It's as you begin to, He is so satisfying. Didn't Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you knew who it was, you'd ask of me, and I would give you living water that would become in you a well or a fountain of water springing up to ever something in you that would satisfy every longing of your life, every desire that you have, every need in your soul would be filled up and satisfied with Him. And you'd look at the temptations of the world and say, what's that? What's that? How could that tempt me?
because I'm so satisfied with him. He's the only thing you can get hooked on that won't fatten you, give you a hangover, <laughs> or get you addicted to because you were made, you were made to seek him first. So a separated life isn't so much what you do, it's first of all, above everything, it's what your heart is seeking after. And what your heart is seeking after becomes the treasure of your life. And the treasure of your life determines how salty you are or how much like the world you taste. Let's pray. Father, as we walk down this road together in your word, we look to you to guide each step that we go. Father, you've called us to be different. Not strange, not weird, not isolated. But we are your representatives. We are the body of Christ in the world today. And we're aware, Lord, of the pressures that are on us, the pressures, in, especially in this country, to conform and to give in and to be like the world. And we're beginning to recognize, Father, how critical it is for your plan and your purpose for our lives and for your kingdom that we retain our saltiness and that we become lights that burn brighter and brighter in this time of darkness. Help us to learn, Lord, that the, the source of the light is not our own willpower, but it's your life in us. The source of the saltiness is not our own works, but it's your presence in us. But as we begin to walk this journey together, help us to see and understand what our part is. And as always, our confidence is not in ourselves. It's not in our determination. It's in you. We just present ourselves to you tonight as those of your children that are willing to go where you're calling us to go, who are willing to be who you've made us to be, are willing to do what you've assigned for us to do by the grace and power of your Spirit who lives in us. In Jesus' name.